seated. A number of years ago, I was leading family devotions at the dining room table, and we'd been inching our way through a primer on the local church, and I would start our discussion with several questions, kind of to review where we had been and what we had learned. And so, for instance, what are the two ordinances of the church? Well, there's the Lord's Supper and there's baptism. Good, we got that right, and we go on to the next question. And one on this particular night, the kids were very young, and I asked them, one of them, to name the two offices of the church. And with great enthusiasm, this young person responded, elders and demons. <laughs> when I finally brought the laughter under control, I explained there's a difference between demons and deacons. Now, in some churches, it's really hard to tell what the difference is, but in some churches, it seems deacons exist to wield control. To make pastors miserable, to press the congregation into the mold that they want, that they have decided beforehand. But thankfully, this is not the case in our church. The New Testament pattern and the pattern this church's deacons follow with distinction is that deacons would build up the body of Christ through deeds of service. As we considered last week, the New Testament pattern indicates no authority over the local church, but rather there are two offices within the church that serve uniquely the congregation and work with as members of the congregation. As we come to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1, we'll, not, we'll be looking uh, later at the book of Acts, but just to think, of, as Paul writes here, he writes to this church, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So the first office is designated by a variety of names, overseer, elder, pastor. But it involves primarily spiritual oversight and teaching of God's Word. The second office is designated, as we see here in Philippians 1, as deacons. <clears throat> That Greek word that's translated here, deacon, is servant. It's the meaning of the word, is servant. Diakonia, diakonos, uh, to serve. All members of the local church are to shepherd one another in the sense that we are to build one another up in the faith. And all members of the local church are to serve one another in the cause of Christ, we're to serve that cause and we're to serve each other. But in God's design, deacons shoulder a unique role of service in building up Christ's body. Now there is not an abundance of New Testament revelation on what deacons are and what they are to do, but we do learn much about the office in Acts chapter 6, and I invite you to turn there in your Bibles, Acts chapter 6 and 1 Timothy chapter 3, we learn what we need to know in these passages. <clears throat> now as we come to Acts chapter 6, the term deacon is not used here, but this is, I think, the genesis of the office. In fact, at this point in the book of Acts, the word elders has not been used either. So it's a very early stage of the New Testament church. 
But between Acts 6, where the word deacon is not used, and when we come to Philippians, uh, as Paul writes there, in this period of time, these two offices develop. They become a pattern in the New Testament church, and we seek to follow that pattern. <clears throat> to this point in the book of Acts, the infant church has been on fire. There was the initiating baptism of the Holy Spirit. There were miraculous powers, tongues, and healing. There was explosive numerical growth. There was faithfulness in the face of persecution. There was vibrant love for Christ and for one another in the local church, such that all knew these people were different and something unique was going on. And there was great joy. But approximately five years after the birth of the church at the Festival of Pentecost, chapter 2, the Jerusalem church faces an internal crisis. This crisis threatens to splinter the church into factions, which would certainly please Satan and would detract from Christ's work to unite his people in love. So in verse 1, we find that dissension rattles the church. Now in these days... When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. There were two subgroups in the Jerusalem church, and on this chart you can kind of compare the two, but there were the Hebrews and the Hellenists. The Hebrews spoke Aramaic, the Hellenists typically Greek, there might have been other languages that they spoke, but Aramaic was spoken there in uh, Israel. By culture, the Hebrews were oriented to Second Temple Judaism, and the Hellenists to the Greco-Roman world and the broader culture of the day. Uh, by location, where they lived, the Hebrews were in Israel, in the land, and the Hellenists were often of the diaspora. They, they, they often lived outside the land, and, and many would have then uh, come, and come back to the land, particularly at the point of death. Uh, or a few years before, but they would want to come back to the land. And so they come with, a, with a, 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 a life that's been lived in a different culture, even speaking a different language. Now, status within, let's just go right to the, the city of Jerusalem. The Hebrews were the majority populace, somewhere between 80 and 90% of the people living in, in Jerusalem who were uh, Jewish in, in, in their nationality would have about 80 to 90 percent, where the minority populace, uh, the Hellenists, 10 to 20 percent, were deemed second class citizens. They were not as significant, not seen as significant. They were just, they were a minority, and so they were set off to the side somewhat. Now you have widows coming out of these two contexts, of these two subgroups in the church of Jerusalem. So there arises, we see here in verse 1, a complaint. The Greek indicates the Hellenists were grumbling in private conversations about the church that they were overlooking or neglecting their widows in the ministry. Disillusioned by what seemed to be uneven treatment, they grumbled about it. And the word indicates something of a private conversation. They're just grumbling uh, to one another about this just doesn't seem fair. This is not what the church is. This isn't how it should work. And they were upset about it. And so they were complaining. The apostles do not respond with wounded pride. They do not dismiss the complaint. They don't deny it. But we see in verses 2 through 4 that they propose a solution. 
So there's, there's this um, dissension that rattles the church, and then there is a solution that's proposed in verse 2. And the twelve, the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. One solution would be for the apostles, the leaders of the Jerusalem church at this time, to oversee this Meals on Wheels ministry to the widows of the Jerusalem church. They would order it, they would direct it, they would make sure that everything was done decently and in order. They did not see this service as below them. They worshipped the Savior who washed their feet on the night of His betrayal and called them to do the same. If anybody had a lot on their mind, it was Jesus on the night of His betrayal and He washed their feet. It wasn't below them to take meals to widows or to oversee this responsibility. They had fully embraced Jesus' teaching that the greatest among us are those who serve. Greatness is not determined by how many people are under you. It's determined by how you serve others. They worshipped a Savior who came not to be served, but to serve. And to give His life a ransom for many. This is not below them. The problem was what? The problem was if they exercised oversight of this noble, legitimate ministry of love, it would steal away time for preaching God's Word. That, the apostles said, would be foolish. Should we feed widows and starve the church? Is that what we should do? And so the apostles take decisive leadership and they propose a solution. They don't throw the matter out to all the people and allow anybody to come up with any solution they think of on the moment, but rather... They do their work behind the scenes. They talk together. They propose a solution. They serve the congregation as overseers in this way, and they come with this solution. Verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Pick out from among you. So the apostles trust the assembly to know one another and to have the integrity to make proper selections. Seven men, perhaps one to oversee each day of the week, we don't know, but uh, maybe there's even more indication that this was just a common number that was chosen in Greek uh, councils. Uh, whatever the reason, the qualification the apostles established is that these men must be full of the Holy Spirit, they must be full of wisdom. Full of the Holy Spirit means not that they're super saints. It means that they are individuals who are characterized by the influence of God's Spirit upon them. These are people that are genuine believers in Christ. These are people who evidence the fruits of the Spirit. Look for men who are godly men, is a simple way of saying it. And they need to be full of wisdom. As we understand that word biblically, it speaks of moral skill. But they need to be able at administration and at administration with a spiritual orientation. So find men like this and we will appoint them to this duty. That is, they will be selected by the congregation and supplied with the authoritative approval of the apostles. Their task was to oversee this ministry to assure that it was handled equitably. Notice verse 4. But we will devote ourselves, in contrast, to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. 
So the spiritual shepherds of the church, here the apostles, later elders, were leading in the church. They knew that their God-given priority was to devote themselves to the ministry of the Word and prayer. They knew this was their task as they exercised oversight in the assembly. It was right and good for the church to supply food for their widows. It was right and good for the apostles to oversee a solution to the problem, but it would be wrong for them to take the time that they should be preparing and ministering spiritual food in order to minister physical food. You notice they refer to it as ministry. Diakonia, everyone in the church serves. But the apostles' unique service was to preach God's word and to pray. They too would be serving the assembly, is the point. Now think of that for a moment. The apostles attended the best seminary in history. There was never been, there has never been a better seminary than the seminary they went to, and yet they said, we need to keep studying Scripture. They hadn't learned it all from Jesus. They needed to continue because of the weakness of the human mind and because they were continuing to grow themselves in the way Jesus pointed them. They needed to continue to feed on the Word of God and prepare it and understand it that they might deliver it to the church. And so elders must fill their minds with Scripture and purify their souls in prayer, and that takes time, and all of us should be doing the same. But as we think of John 13, we know that there is nothing, no task, no ministry that is below a shepherd. We cannot think like that if we're followers of Jesus. A shepherd should clean up vomit if that's necessary in the church. He should clean bathrooms and dig in the dirt and sweep floors and move chairs and help people move. He's a servant like everyone else. But there is a priority here, and he must prioritize above all else the ministry of the word and prayer. That is of utmost importance. So the ministry, let's think of it this way, the ministry of these seven men would directly enable the ministry of prayer and the Word. It would be facilitating that. It would be clearing a path for that. And all of it for the health of the church. So it was to be a synergistic relationship. The two working together and together being greater than they would have been on their own. The service these men render directly enables the shepherds to teach and to pray. Well, we see then in verses 5 and 6 that the church facilitates the solution. Verse 5, and what they said pleased the whole gathering of people, of disciples, the church. It, it, it pleased them. This indicates respect in both directions. The opinion of the church mattered, and the church was responsive to the apostolic leadership. Neither the shepherds nor the flock were dictating terms to one another. There was thoughtful, respectful cooperation. The apostles took initiative. They led. They proposed a solution, appealing to the church to help them. The church did not kick. It didn't resist. It didn't insist on doing things its own way just to do things its own way. They said it's a good idea. It makes good sense. You've thought about it. Submitting to the apostles' leadership, they saw the wisdom in it. 
and they chose seven men. Verse 5, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, that's all um, foreshadowing, of course, as it points to chapter 7, Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas and a, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So the apostles pray, laying their hands on them is a way of saying that the apostles authorized these men to fulfill this ministry. On the one hand, the apostles function as overseers of the deacons, of these servants. On the other hand, these servants exercise oversight with wide latitude. The, the hands of the apostles on them is saying, go, work, design this ministry, take off with it. And the ideal would be, the hope was that these seven men would meet together and so ably, equitably, and compassionately execute their duties, they would bless the apostles as Joseph blessed Potiphar, taking this work and getting it done. Now, these widows that were here, it was, it was common for Jewish men who were living outside of the land to come back and to die there, and they would often leave then a widow at the end of her life to finish out her days in the land. And so there were a number of them, undoubtedly, and it, 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 there was a system of caring for widows in Israel, according to the Old Covenant, but it was it's perhaps even probable that they were being skipped by the larger culture. So the church needed to take up this work, and there were those who were being missed. This is going to end. And the apostles in the church said, listen, this isn't a matter, we don't, we don't deal in these terms of Hellenists against Hebrews. We are believers in Jesus Christ, which crosses all boundaries with human beings. The church has brought together and will bring together, particularly in the future, Jews and Gentiles, let alone Hebrews and Hellenists. That's not a problem. Let's get past this, but let's come up with this solution. Let's work it out. And these seven men are going to take this dissension, this problem away by their ministry to the body, to the body of Christ in the large sense and to this particular church at Jerusalem. And we see that, I don't think it's an accident, the verse 7 follows that the church prospers spiritually. Verse 7, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So the church had been rattled for a time, but by working together in love, the church handled the problem, and the work of evangelism went forward. As the apostles, indeed as Philip and Stephen and all of the church, preached God's word, people responded. And some of those that responded, we have just a, a, a simple addition put in here. Some of them were these priests that would be coming back to the land, from, or back to Jerusalem rather, from throughout the land, and coming on rotation of two weeks, they would serve. And during these two weeks, they kept running into Christians who shared the gospel, and many of them were responding. And trusting Christ as Savior. It's an amazing statement, amazing time. So when we look to the example of Christ and to his ministry, he had hungry people, he just fed them out of nowhere. I know he didn't do that all the time, but he could. And why did he feed them? So that they could hear the word of God. The same thing's going on in the church here. It's just a different means. They're feeding people so that the word of God goes forward. 
like their Savior, as the body of Christ, as His ears and eyes and hands and feet, they are accomplishing what Christ would accomplish. The carrying on of the Gospel and the feeding of people as that was necessary in this context. So the deacons fulfilled their ministry, opening the way for shepherds to minister to the Word and to pray, and for the entire church, richly fed on God's Word, to preach Jesus, and souls responded and were saved. Now, as we think on these deacons, as the New Testament develops, it is clear that there are qualifications. That's clear here. Men full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. To, to find the best in the church, in a sense, that can step forward in this particular role and fulfill it. But as the church developed, elders slowly took over the leadership role from the apostles. The twelve apostles remain the authority in the church to this day, particularly through their writings as we stand upon what they have written under inspiration, under the inspiration of the Spirit. As the words and the text is, is inspired of him, these elders then exercising oversight and shepherding the flock of God continue to reflect the authority of the apostles. But their particular emphasis is the ministry of the word and prayer. Deacons emerge from this scene to form teams of servants who strategize together, support one another, who provide oversight to the church in meeting its physical needs. Now that context of our day is very different. A widow living comfortably was almost unheard of in a day where you lived uh, day by day. And many, many, the vast majority of people having very little economically in Judea, a very difficult place. That's all very different from our day, but whatever the work they're doing... They need to be a certain kind of people. And so we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3 where the New Testament gives us indication of the qualifications or lays down the qualifications for deacons. Verse 8, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified. Deacons likewise points back to the qualifications for elders in verses 1-7, through seven, indicating that while the roles are different, both offices are held to a similar standard. There are to be men who are dignified, that is worthy of respect. Dignified means not silly or flippant. They're, they're not double-tongued. These are, these are men who are going to be dealing with financial issues perhaps that was the case in Acts 6 and uh, administrating and it's easy to say one thing to one person and something else to someone else they have to speak the truth they got to speak straight they're not to be addicted to much wine in the commonly diluted wine of the day one who stood for a long time around wine was a person that given to drunkenness was a person given given to um, a lack of self-control, and that's not to be who they are. Um, the idea, probably less literal, pointing to one who evidences mastery over his tastes and is not driven by the flesh and his tastes. He's not greedy of dishonest gain, verse 8. The indication, again, supported by Acts 6, is that they may well handle money, in the discharge of their duties, and it's imperative that they be men of integrity with no weakness for ill-gotten gain. You've got to trust them. 
You've got to trust them with money. Verse 9, they must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. Unlike elders, deacons are not required to be teachers of the Word as such. A deacon may be an excellent teacher. Uh, I, I think we have indication of that in Acts 7 uh, with Stephen and Acts 8 with Philip, two of these who are chosen. But deacons are to know the gospel. They're to detect false doctrine. They're to have assurance of their salvation. Verse 10, let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Tested first, I don't think, is we're going to put this person in the position of deacon and give them a probationary period and see how it works. I understand the word tested here to be the church should be over time discerning who are individuals that serve uniquely. So the church should observe and bear witness that this man is spirit-filled, that he serves God with skill, that he serves God with fervor. It's foolish for a church to select a deacon they have not observed to be a man of character with a spirit willing to serve. It is foolish to put someone in that position so they come to church more often. It's foolish to put someone in church in that position so that we encourage their spiritual walk. The church is to test and to see individuals who get things done with a willing spirit and are spirit-filled leaders. So this is the opposite of what I call the Teflon man. The Teflon man is the guy who served. He's really skilled at avoiding work. Now, if you've ever been in a factory, as I have in days long gone, you've met the Teflon man. He, he, just, he just has an ability of just getting around everything, and it's always all the jobs slip off of him. He assumes that others will do the work, or at least he hopes that they will, and he'll do the work if it comes to him, but he's going to do everything he can to make sure someone else does the work. He's always too busy, as if no one else is. He is busy. You're not, but he is. That's the Teflon man. They don't make good deacons. And the church should be able to discern who such people are, the, the people that do take on work, that yes, they're very busy, but they never have used that as an excuse. They just get things done. A person that we would test as a church would be one who has a can-do spirit, who tackles the work. Deacons are doers. And then, if they're so tested, let them serve. The actual jobs they're to perform is not defined, indicating that each church will have its somewhat distinct needs, and are free to define what those needs are, as was the case in Acts 6. But that's just not a need that we particularly have. We have on some level, but not in that same sense. But that was the need of that day. We have needs in our day. Verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. The word wives is variously interpreted. Interpreted, I'll, I'll, I'll admit, but I believe this is indeed a reference to the deacon's wives. The reason, just very briefly, it's a long debate, but verse 12, let the deacons each be the husband of one wife. Wife and wives, same word, no indication that we're talking about differently. In verse 12, there's no question what it means. So since that's the case, and there's no indication there's been a shift of meaning, we would assume that wives is what's intended in verse 11. And so there's a qualification for their wives. They need to be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded and faithful in all things. He will need to lean on her. 
And she will, by virtue of his work, get involved in his work. And so she needs, too, to be someone who walks in integrity. Verse 12, Let deacons then each be the husband of one wife, a one-woman man, literally, managing their children and their own households well. The husband of one wife, a man singularly devoted to his wife, managing their children and their own household well. The home is a proving ground for a man's leadership in God's family. If he cannot lead his home ably, he cannot serve the family of God ably. Doesn't mean he cannot serve. Doesn't mean there's no future there. But it just means if that's an area of struggle, this is just not the place of service for him in this congregation. Verse 13, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So when a deacon serves God and the church faithfully, his reputation and influence grows, as does his faith. I think that's the point of it. This is a good deal. Men are growing in faith and growing within the context of the congregation that there is respect, thanksgiving, and faithfulness. So there is an organic relationship between serving Christ and spiritual growth. I'd say that to all of us. I, I realize specifically this passage pertains to very few. It pertains to some who don't know it pertains to them. But it pertains to all of us in a very significant way. Do you want to grow in your walk with Christ? Do you say, I want to move forward. I want to grow in my faith. I want to grow in my walk with Him. I, I think we have in this church a lot of people that say, absolutely. There are many means to this end. There's the reading of Scripture and there's prayer, for instance, and most obviously... But one vital means of growth is to get busy serving others in Christ's name. And you will inevitably grow. I thank God so much for His work in my life on that very point. At age 19, when I said, my life is yours, through a series of circumstances, I told Him, I'll do whatever you give me to do. The things He gave me to do weren't very glamorous, and a lot of people would have probably turned their nose up and not done them. But where he led me one step at a time was to get busy using my life to serve other people. And I, I grew. I really grew. I know that there's lots of means that we need to include, but spending time and effort and ability and giving it away to the cause of Christ is part of our growth as Christians. And we can't really get around it, and we don't want to. And very often, one of the first signs a believer is struggling spiritually is a tapering off of service to Christ. Now, all of us are going to have to shut this door, right? We're going to, get, we're going to give in to age. And we're going to all have to start to taper off in ministry somewhere in our life's journey. There are reasons to begin to pull back. Health reasons, other circumstances a change in a person's capacities to serve. This is part of closing off our account and meeting Christ. We can't get around that either. 
But if there's no explanation, no good reason, and a person begins to turn away and drop and and pull back from ministry, from serving others in the name of Christ, it's very rare in my experience that that's good. It's almost always an indication something is wrong. And if you respond to this and say, yeah, i got to get going. I need to get moving again and put a little more time into the church and, and give away some more volunteer efforts, you're missing the whole point. When Jesus places His grace upon you in salvation, He changes you and fits you to serve Him. It may not be very obvious to other people what you're doing, but He wants you to be investing your life in the greater cause of Christ, not merely investing your life in staying alive. As we think that way and begin to orient ourselves that way, serving the church is not a duty that I need to kind of work on here and, yeah, let's get back to it and work a little bit harder. Serving Christ is an honor. Serving Christ is a gift. It is allowing my life to be larger than my story. And it's to be joining His cause and His purpose in this world. There's no greater way to live. It's not about doing it because we must and these things have to get done. It's about orienting my life toward the Savior that I love and serving others in His name. Deacons are pace-setters in this. They're pace-setters in ministry involvement and perseverance. And that's what it takes to continue to clip along in service of the Lord. So as we think of this important gift to the church, of this important office, I'd like us to think in practical terms as a congregation. I have just several lines of application and reflection. They'll be fairly brief, but let's, let's narrow in on them. First of all, we should give heartfelt thanks to God for the deacons of our church. They are not demons. And thankfully, I've never, been, never had that thought cross my mind other than in humor. They are what they are called to be. They're pace setters in ministry. I'm talking about our deacons. I'm not talking in theory. They're pace setters in ministry. They are servants who bear a heavier load than the rest of us in serving the cause of Christ. And we should give thanks that our team of deacons is tracking with the biblical vision. They don't have a concept that is outside of Scripture. They're not using their office in an inappropriate way, but they are tracking with the New Testament pattern. So they're not seeking to control the church to their own advantage. They are bearing the weight of ministry so that the elders can do their job, so that the church is served, so that the cause of Christ goes forward. I think we should give thanks. I do my dead level best to limit as many sports illustrations as possible if you only knew how many good ones I bury. But this I just can't get around. They are the offensive line in football that clears the way for the backs. That's what they are, and they're good. They do it well. Our deacons are hardworking, unpretentious, faithful servants of Christ, and this church is healthier 
because they follow that New Testament pattern. So let's thank God. And let us routinely thank them for the service that they do. Secondly, we should intercede for our deacons as they shoulder the weight of their responsibilities. To pray for them. It's not difficult for them to become discouraged as they perform their duties week in and week out. Closing down the building when everyone's gone, or most everyone. Counting offerings. Recording it, setting up, tearing down rooms, managing the church property inside and out, administering the deacon's fund, meeting together long after the rest of the church has gone home, strategizing for our safety, and a thousand tasks that we never see. Don't ever know. One of my fun ones is when we're in that, they're in that room over there uh, doing CPR on a dummy. Well, we're the dummies, right? And if I need that, which could happen any time, I suppose, I'm glad somebody's thinking about that. They do these kinds of things. And the shock deal, you know, that, that would be exciting to use, but we'll hope we never need it. But um, it's sitting over there. They've got a plan to use it on you if you go down, on me if I go down. Who's going to think about that? I mean, I, I'd worry about somebody that came up with that idea on their own. But our deacons, they're watching for us, and they do these kinds of things. I think, thirdly, we should rejoice with our deacons as God uses their office to mold them and build them up in the faith. There should be no sense of jealousy. There should only be a sense of rejoicing with them that God is using this office in their life to allow their faith to deepen and allow their reputation to grow as it ought to within the congregation. We should rejoice. We should give thanks. God's doing this among us. Let's give Him thanks and let's rejoice with them. And we should respect our deacons as overseers of ministry whose load we help to lift. I would would say we should not throw jobs at the deacons simply because no one else wants to do it or because they are the easiest ones to ask. Well, the deacons will do it their job. We should look for ways to help them in their work, ways to lift the load, ways to come alongside and and be there to serve with them. Do not dump on deacons tasks that you can fulfill yourself. General rule. There are tasks that they should do and even some that they alone can do. But let's look for ways to help them, all of us, including the elders, including every member of the church. We should look for ways to help them in their duties. Our deacons are and should be seen as heavy lifters who have the capacity and track record of seeing messes and courageously fixing them. We should respect that. They talk together and work together to get things fixed. Thank God for them. Let's respect them for that. Five, we should learn to raise up deacons from within our church. John 13, orientation, if that's here, that our master washes feet, then we should orient our whole church that way and have a vibrant environment of willing service. There should be a knowledge within the congregation of how we operate in that service and a systematic plan to develop Deacons. There is a plan in place and it's helpful. 
It, it, not everyone should be a deacon by any means. It's not wrong that one isn't. But our process of training deacons, sometimes it just becomes clear, this is just not where I live. This is not uh, the, the circumstances of life that works for me. This is not fitted to who I am. Those are good things to discover. But beyond that, the church itself should be recognized the importance of service, servant leadership and identifying individuals who are can-do, get-it-done, fix-the-problems, skilled and spirit-filled individuals. Number six, we should recognize the significance that one office of the local church is that of spiritual shepherd and the other is that of servant. These offices reflect the ministry and the heartbeat of our Lord. Do we recognize that? That's why they're here. Though he was rich, though he was the king of kings and lord of lords, the creator and ruler and sustainer of the universe, he became poor. He took on flesh to live among us, not as a celebrity or as a ruler, but as a servant, becoming obedient even unto death. He came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And He taught us by word and example that the greatest among us are the servants of all. Is it any question that He would establish His church with an office of servants? Our Master washed His disciples' feet, and in the eschaton He will gird Himself and serve us, we are told. And our eternal salvation hinges on Him becoming that servant even unto death. Dying on the cross to atone for our sins and rising from the dead to complete our justification and reconciliation to God. And so at the end of the day, this sermon is not about deacons. This sermon is about the deacon. It is about the Savior who served us by dying in our place, defeating our greatest enemy, death, submitting to it so as to defeat it, and saying, my people, serve there's an office in the church that's named that. And it is a reflection of what we are all to be doing. Shepherding one another by edifying the body of Christ through our efforts and serving one another and the cause of Christ. We do this because of who our Master is. The Good Shepherd and the Servant above all servants. Let's bow. Lord, we do bow before You, our Savior, in humble respect and thanksgiving. There's a lot of saviors in this world with small S's that promote themselves, exalt themselves, do everything that is imaginable to get others to serve them. And we know that as the Lord and Master, this is Your right but we see something so different in You, our Savior and our Lord. 
you served. You gave yourself away. And that is because, unlike all the other saviors in this world, you are one who loves. And it takes love to serve. And I pray that this church would be a church that serves your cause and one another in love. That we would take our time, our gifts, our abilities, our opportunities, our resources, and that we would invest them in one another and in your cause, giving them away in love, willing to do what is best for other people and to set our own agendas aside to be willing to even hurt so that others are helped. And I pray that you will keep bending us to so reflect the nature and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in these efforts. And I pray for anyone who has not come to see Christ as the Good Shepherd and the servant who died and rose again, that they would come to saving faith today as our prayer together for them According to your will and purpose, we plead that you would draw them and enlighten them even this day and bring them to saving grace. And we rejoice together in the Lord Jesus Christ who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In that ransom is our hope and is our life. And we pause here to give you thanks. Thanks for our deacons. Thanks for all the servants of this church, but thankful above all else for the great servant, our Lord Jesus Christ. We give you praise and thanksgiving in his name. Amen. Please stand with me and let's just consider for a few moments in silence.